welcome back everyone for my final episode of the year i am actually joined with emily marinelli we're gonna do an in memoriam for all the actors who have passed away but before we do that i'm gonna hand over the mic so she can introduce herself further and talk about what she's been up to since the nadine episode Hi, Colin. Thanks so much for having me for this particular episode. I really love in memoriam episodes. And I know that sounds kind of funny, but I always look forward to them. Like when I watch award shows or the Oscars, I think they're just really special to be able to think back to the folks that we've lost and remember them and celebrate them. So thank you for inviting me to join you on this. And I'm Emily Marinelli or Ems Marinelli. I do the Twin Peaks Tattoo Podcast where I interview people about their ink and what their ink means to them, their, ta their Twin Peaks tattoos and also whatever ink other ink they might have. And I have been doing that and I just put out a bonus episode for 2022 and I'll be picking things back up in January. Yeah, this is a year where, unfortunately, we lost a lot of talented people. It seemed like for a while, yeah. it was like almost like on a monthly basis, because we lost seven people total, which are Gary Bullock, Kenneth Welsh, Julie Cruz, Lenny Von Dolan, David Warner, Al Strobel, and Angela Badalamenti. And the thing is that all of them brought something special, no matter how big or small their roles were, they always brought something special and always had some that resonated with fans. And uh, to start us off with the In Memoriam episode, Ben and Brian of Twin Peaks Unwrapped have agreed to do one for Gary Bogg, and here they are to present it. Hi, this is Ben. And this is Brian. From Twin Peaks Unwrapped Podcast. For this segment, we're just talking about Gary Bullock. He, uh, what kind of a tribute he passed away this past year. Just wanted to talk a little bit about him. We had him on, what was it, right before uh, the return, right before season three started, uh, we yeah. got to interview him. May 2017. Yeah. So right before, right before that, you know, it's funny, you know, I love doing these, these interviews with the actors, but sometimes the best part of talking with them is finding out about their life other than Twin Peaks. Right. I mean, something about Gary that I thought was really interesting was that he did audiobooks. Like he would like record audiobooks. He would be like, you know, he, if you got audiobooks, you have the narr the person who does the voice uh, work for it. So he would one of his one of his jobs that he did was he he would do these these audiobooks. He would record, and I think he did it with his wife, which was really something. He also was a writer, so he also wrote his own. Uh, I think they were uh, fantasy, uh, sci-fi novels as well, and that was so interesting to hear about that part of things. That he not only was he an actor, but he also loved writing and doing voice work. Yeah, and it was so cool because, like, when we learned that about him later on, when we did our book, we've always been discussing an audio <laughs> version, and we discussed before we knew about his passing and. Uh, sadly, like we really were thinking about Gary Bullock. He... I know if we did an audiobook of the Twin Peaks Unwrapped book, we were thinking, who would, would it be cool to have a Twin Peaks actor uh, maybe do some of the audio of that? And we we never even got the chance to really talk to Gary about it. But it was one of those things that I think he was such a professional and he did it all the time. You know, I think he had his own like equipment set up at his home. Yeah. And he just and it, for him and that wouldn't that have been fun if we ever did an audiobook of our of twin peaks unwrapped that we could have gary be a part of that if he you know wanted to but yeah that's so yeah what a nice guy he was i mean so of course this is sheriff cable from firewalk with me and um you know he comes off as such a, a mean guy in the movie but it's such a nice nice guy and uh, it was so great talking with him yeah I and mean, we had the ben i mean i think we've been very blessed 
to get to talk to a lot of these folks. And now as we're all getting older and people are passing away, we I think we're very blessed that we got this interview with Gary and learn more about him. And I think his work will live on not only in Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me, but his voice will live on mm. audiobooks for generations and generations. Uh, as long as there's audiobooks out there, you're going to hear his voice randomly. And I think yeah. that's so cool. Um, so your, cool. Yeah, your art, your work lives beyond us. And I think that's something really cool um, we can find comfort in that yeah. our art and our work will live beyond just our physical beings. Definitely. And, you know, we hear this a lot from the uh, Twin Peaks actors that, like, Lynch loved to say, talk slower, talk slower, and dreamy, dreamy. And, like, some people that we talked to really struggled with that, and they really didn't get what Lynch was looking for. But Gary, he really, he got it. Like, when you see him, he draws it on. It's like, you know, he really takes... You know, he really took his time and mm-hmm. what he had to say. And I, I I think he really fit into the Lynch world so well. And so <laughs> I'm trying to think of a quote there that, that I was thinking of. Like, we, yeah, I can't think of one right now in Firewalk with you, but he, that, that draw, that kind of very slow take on things. And, and like, <laughs> we don't really care for the FBI, but, you know, the way he went yeah. about it, it's like so good. Yeah. So here is to you, Gary Bullock. It was a pleasure that we you get to be on our show and you'll be missed, but your work will always be remembered. So before me and Emily start to get into the tribute that Ben and Brian put out, I did want to thank them for having such an incredible interview five years back and for them to take the time. But to move on to Gary Bullock now. With Gary Bullock, he actually died at age 80 on April 11th of this year. He was working consistently in acting from 1989 to 2005. Uh, he was working on stuff like Robocops 2 and 3. He worked on Star Trek, NYPD Blue, Ally McBeal, Buffy, X-Files, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and The Shield. So he was finding a lot of great work, and, and Fire Walk Me was actually one of his earliest roles. After he finished with acting for a while, he actually was doing writing for a time. On Twin Peaks Unwrapped, he actually talked about his book Elsewhen, which was released in 2012. And then uh, five years later, he uh, wrote The Elsewhen Gene. And on Twin Peaks Unwrapped, he actually was talking about how he just felt so attached to these characters. And you can just tell just by the way he was talking about that he really just, there's something about creating that just resonates with him. Also, in the case of with uh, Gary Bullock is that he brought a really unique presence to Sheriff Cable because mm-hmm. despite the fact that he's not like really muscular, there's just something about his, uh, I believe he's six foot four. And there's something about how he could just tap into this like secretive and territorial demeanor that was really hard to articulate and really hard to emulate as well. Before I say anything else about Gary Bullock or the tribute, do you have anything else to say about him? Yeah, well, Gary Bullock and this character of Sheriff Cable is one of these villains that we kind of love to hate, but also love. And he does it really well. Like, you know, you're playing a villain well if you still kind of like them. You know, and he does that. He's like the voice of the small town. He's kind of the underdog, which I like. I also appreciate characters who have like a healthy distrust of the FBI and like general distrust of like the government and apprehension and disdain about that. So even though he creates a lot of problems, I like what he represents. And, you know, I just rewatched The Missing Pieces and I love all of that. That whole fighting scene is just like, it's so great. And, you know, Colin, you mentioned some of his other work and his work as a writer. And I just want to put a plug for a little short film that he made with his wife called A Couple of Horses Asses 
which is a funny title and is about a 17 minute movie that you can watch from their website. It's just a really sweet and kind of weird story about a man who's having a hard time remembering his ex-partner and who she is and talks a little bit about memory loss and a lot about trains. And it's just great. And I, I just appreciate him for all he brings and what you said, Colin, too, about his kind of natural or his realism style of and way of being. It really works in the Lynch world. This might be the last thing I really can say about Gary Bullock is that I think one of the reasons why he so resonates as Sheriff Cable is that he says that the one thing that he remembers Lynch saying is that do everything but slower. And there's just a way that Sheriff Cable would just draw and just drag his words out where it really brought like a certain, like I was saying before, there's something not quite, I guess you could say menacing, but there's just something uniquely just as an antagonist that just made him seem more formidable. And of course we have ironically the uh, Sheriff Cable Ben Steele, where it's actually like mostly a comedic sort of thing. Yeah. So he really knew how to be on the same page with Lynch and just like what would really add to that character. So Honestly, yeah, Gary Bullock, even though Sheriff Cable wasn't really a big part in Firewalk with me, he does add a great deal to he it. He does. He absolutely does. And Ben and Brian do a fantastic job of remembering him. Moving on to our second tribute, Maya McBriar has sent one in for Kenneth Welsh, and here she is to present it. Hi there, Colin and fans of Cream Corn in the Universe. This is Maya from Twin Peaks Fanatic, and thank you for including me in your Kenneth Welsh episode. The thing that I think of the most when I think of Wyndham Earl is obviously his costumes. <laughs> and I think that's one of my particular favorite aspects of that character. Ever since I was a kid and I first started watching Twin Peaks, I always felt that the Wyndham Earl episodes were probably the brightest spot of that particular part of season two. And I think that's a real tribute to Kenneth Welsh as an actor. From what I understand, he was a very classically trained actor, a very studied man, and clearly uh, had a wonderful personality. And he brought all of those elements to the role of Wyndham Earl and struck a really amazing balance between being kind of creepy and menacing and at times frightening. It, you know, for me, I always thought when he dressed up as the log lady and kidnapped Annie, that particular scene was, was kind of scary, you know, uh, but the humor that he also brought to the character made him so much fun to watch. And he always kind of reminded me of the Joker from like 1960s Batman, because he had, you know, just sort of this over the top way, you know, the dialogue, the speeches that he was crazed, but he was, you know, very calculated and that, I think, is because Kenneth Welsh was just such a good, good actor. And he's, from everything I've seen him in over the years, uh, particularly one of my favorites, which was The X-Files, he has a way of just bringing an intensity to every character he plays that was just amazing. And his loss is deeply felt. I sadly never had the pleasure of meeting him but from all i've seen he seems like a super receptive uh, to fans kind funny and a real character in his own right so um it is a deep loss that he's gone along with julie cruz and lenny van dolan this year and so many others that we've had to say goodbye to over the years 
but thankfully he left us a wonderful legacy of work and um, I will always be a Wyndham Earl fan. So thank you for having me on. Good luck with your show and I'll talk to you soon. Maya, she did a really good job of covering about what makes Wyndham Earl just who he is. When I think of Kenneth Welsh, I think of how easy that this performance could have gone south because I've seen him meet a lot of people, even just this year, who've kind of turned sour of the character of Wyndham Earl. And I think it's really unfair. I mean, there's probably things you could, you know, if you want to talk about like about writing, I guess you could make a case for. But in terms of performance, he is, I think he's absolutely perfect. Yeah, because for me, I think of what really makes him is that he embodies this malevolent demeanor, but he also revels in the over the top performance. Because I think of like in terms of Twin Peaks, there's always like that darkness to it. But then there's this always this low key campy nature where you're not sure whether to laugh or feel scared. And the way he does all these different costumes, it's just like he always knows a way how to do it. Like, you know, when he dresses up as a log lady, like Maya mentioned, is that it looks kind of silly, but it feels like really intense when Owen Bobby goes up to Wyndham Earl and like bludgeons him over the head with the log. And it feels extremely menacing. And you see all these other costumes where you just feel this presence. Um, I was actually thinking about when I did my rewatch last September about the presence, even when he's off screen. For example, when he dresses up as a professor to visit Donna in the Hayward home, and then uh, when um, Doc Hayward comes back, you really feel this like violation. It just feels like this uneasiness that he could just show up and could do anything really. And that's powerful. That presence is really powerful. I mean, that's that's a, detest a testament to his acting. Like he's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, and he's done a lot of stuff. Like he's been working in film and TV in the '60s until his death. Like he's even in the new uh, Kids in the Hall reboot, uh, which yeah. was posthumous. Um, yes. Yeah. And he's worked with a lot of talented people as well. Like uh, once again, he's worked with the in the X Files. He was in Lodge Forty Nine on AMC. He worked with Martin Scorsese in The Aviator, and also that year when the movie Miracle came out. So he's always found like a lot of like great work and he's always been great in everything as well. Yeah, unfortunately, um, we did lose him at the age of 80 on May 5th of this year from cancer. I just think that we lost someone who was like, who brought a lot to Twin Peaks and also just seemed like a really just wonderful man all around as well. Mm -hmm. He does. He does. I I agree with, you know, what, what Maya said about him too, that his essence comes out in the character. He really is the shining moment of season two. I was thinking back to my favorite Wyndham Earl moment about when he's on the video talking about the Black Lodge and it's like black and white grainy. And I remember watching it the first time and literally saying to my friend, is this real? Is this a real clip from something? <laughs> As if Wyndham Earl was a real person and this was a real clip from like a historical thing. Like I had a like like a mind trip that happened to me because his acting was so incredible when he was talking about the Black Lodge that I thought it was real. I mean, and, and he, like Sheriff Cable, is one of those villains that we love, even though obviously they're like terrible. I mean, he's a serial. This guy is a serial killer. He's got a lot of problems, but we love him. You know, there's like a like a special place in our heart because of because of what Kenneth brought, I think. And I also want to just mention, I love that you mentioned the kids in the hall moment, Colin. I'm a huge kids in the hall fan. And when he passed, Dave Foley from Kids in the Hall tweeted, 
I'm so sad to hear that Ken Walsh has died. I was once honored by Ken agreeing to waste his immense talents in my dumb movie, The Wrong Guy, which is another funny movie. More recently, he helped us out in a sketch for the Kids in the Hall reboot. It was great to spend the day hanging out and listening to stories. And it made me so happy because I love thinking about that being one of the last things that he did. And yeah, I mean, other things like Legends of the Fall, The Day After Tomorrow, Aviator. I mean, his list, if you look at what he gave us, it's just immense. And he was also, I remember seeing him one year at the Twin Peaks Fest and just from afar, just kind of like feeling his energy and his presence in the room. And it was so warm and open and inviting. And of course, there was a long, a long line and I and I sort of just got to sort of wave to him and say hi to him. But But you could feel him even in the room. And so I think that's just what he gave and i think of uh how willing he is to reach out to fans because i think of when uh mm -hmm. ben and brian for one of their episodes for twin peaks unwrapped where they're going through the script at the end of season two and kenneth welsh actually reintroduced himself as Wyndham earl to play those parts so he really does care about the fans and you really it's like you're saying before that you get that vibe of like whether you see him in person or on screen the the last thing i have to say about kenneth walsh is actually his intro is Wyndham earl you have that episode where leo johnson he goes to this seemingly random cabin and just the presence that uh Wyndham earl has because of kenneth walsh's performance you really feel that he is like going to be this like formidable foe throughout the rest of the mm -hmm. season. So honestly, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Kenneth Welsh, he brought something extraordinarily special to that latter part of okay. season two when a lot of people needed it. And um, yeah, <laughs> so he, so honestly, like uh, his role as Wyndham Earl, I think he perfectly encapsulated what Twin Peaks was all about in that segment for me. And um, yeah. yeah, so uh, yeah, my heart goes out to him and his family. Yeah, he's gonna be missed. And to move on to the third tribute, Anita Wren has sent one in for Julie Cruz, and here she is to present it. Hello, my name is Anita Wren, and I had the extreme honor and privilege of calling Julie Cruz a friend of mine. She had sent me an instant message years ago on Facebook after I had posted a ridiculous picture of me with hot rollers in my hair, and we talked that night for several hours. At first, I could not believe that I was communicating with the Julie Cruz. I have been a tremendous fan of Twin Peaks since it first aired, and that soundtrack with Julie Cruz's voice meant the world to me. It got me through many many a difficult period of my life and I listen to it constantly for most of my life. So after I got over the fact that it was Julie Cruz that I was laughing with, we developed quite a friendship and I thought of her more as a friend than one of my idols. She would ask about my children she would ask about my husband. She was kind and generous and thoughtful and wickedly funny. She would make me laugh all of the time. She would even sometimes leave me voicemail messages of her laughing, just laughing. I have them saved and I cherish them. There were times when I was reminded of who she was. She was so gifted and had a lot of confidence but she also was extremely sensitive and sometimes could be very self-conscious 
she would confide in me at times about her difficulties in the industry and even shared a lot of her experience when she was filming the third season of Twin Peaks and some of her apprehensions and fears. And I was honored and touched to be able to talk with her through that. It was also extremely entertaining, as you can imagine. Julie loved Trent Reznor. I'll tell you that much. Anyway, I knew how much she loved Twin Peaks and David Lynch and Mark Frost. She had such a unique relationship with David and Angelo, and she talked about it often. It wasn't always happy, however, and she did share a lot of the challenges that come with that kind of artistic relationship. But I know she had such a love for all of those collaborations and especially of the result. She also would talk a lot about her fans and how much she adored them and really lived for them. She was just crazy about them. That's why it was really wonderful when it looked like we could maybe work out a way that we could actually meet each other if she was able to come to the Twin Peaks Festival as a guest in 2016. So she and I talked about the possibility of that and then the organizer approached her and I guess she said that she would attend if I could be there as her friend and help her out with that. So we were able to do that. It was truly magical when I first met her. I was really nervous because even though I felt like our relationship was super real and genuine, I know that it can be different when you meet someone in person that you have such a close relationship with online. And I was scared that something might be a little bit different. <laughs> well, I had gone up, her flight had come in a little earlier and I know that she had checked into the Great Northern Hotel in Snoqualmie and I had gone up to the hotel to meet up with her and take her to dinner, the celebrity dinner that night. It ended up that she did not go to the celebrity dinner that night, but I was still going to go up to the hotel and touch base with her. So I was in the hotel lobby and I was waiting for her to come down and I needed to use the restroom. So I thought, oh, I'll just run to the restroom really quickly and go. So I went to the restroom. It's a small restroom with just two stalls. And I went into one of them. And no sooner did I kind of start to use the restroom that the door to the restroom, there was a big bang as the door flew open. And I hear this voice, raspy voice, done. I know you're in here. And it was Julie, of course. So I got myself together in the stall and came out. And then we hugged and laughed right there in that tiny restroom. So I needn't have been worried. We had an absolute blast for the days that she was there in the Snoqualmie North Bend area. My good friend Mary, who Julie also adores and calls Hutter, we kind of formed a girl gang 
with Julie and were able to hang out with her at the hotel. We made help with the set list for her performance at the North Bend Theater during the festival. And that was just such a surreal honor. It was super important to her that she choose songs that meant a lot to the fans. And she really wanted to sing for Katherine Coulson as well. She had passed away the year before and Julie considered her a good friend and really admired her. So she was thinking about that as we created the set list. And then helping her get ready for that, I got to sit as she worked on a sound check with John Neff. And uh, I just couldn't believe it. I was just sitting by myself in the theater when she was up on stage and she sounded incredible. And to watch her as such an accomplished artist work things out like that, work out her set list and everything. We had some technical difficulties, so the sound check went a little long. And by a little, I mean a lot. And we ended up not getting finished until about a half an hour before she was actually supposed to be back down there to sing and she needed to go back to the hotel and change. The hotel's only about 10 minutes away but still let's just say we were already late as we were leaving the theater because there were people lined up outside the theater to get in as we were leaving the theater. So we went back to the hotel and she had a friend from Seattle, another artist, um, King Dude, that she had invited to watch her performance. And he was at the hotel waiting and I could tell she didn't want to be rude to him and invited him. He was there with his girlfriend and his girlfriend's dog and she invited them all back to the room and it was quite stressful because I knew we were already late. And so anyway, at one point, I asked King Dude if he could possibly just like leave us alone until after her performance so that she could get ready. And that's what he did. And so after he left, she was getting ready. And I actually needed to talk to her and give her a little pep talk because it became apparent that she was nervous. And she confided in me that she did have a bit of stage fright and anxiety before performances. And this one was especially important to her. And so after I assured her that everybody couldn't wait to see her, and this was a dream come true for so many fans, she got ready and we took off and got to the theater. And the organizer was quite upset because she was so late they had changed around the itinerary several times to try to accommodate her being there until they ended up starting Mulholland Drive when <laughs> when we were there. And so I couldn't believe it that they had started it, but I told them they needed to stop it, that she was there. So we came in through the back entrance and went up these dark stairs in it is just the most incredible thing. She took a deep breath and like they stopped the movie. She went out on stage. I scurried like across the stage and found a spot, thankfully, that somebody had saved for me out at the audience. And it was absolute magic. The crowd there, 
the adoring and wonderful crowd there gave her a standing ovation for many minutes. It was so touching and she was so moved and she began to sing and you could tell she was a little nervous at first, but with each adoring look from her fans and applause, she just was just soaring at the end and received another standing ovation at the end of the performance. I don't think there was a dry eye in the house and it was incredible just incredible. One of the best things I have ever been a part of, just seeing her face. And at the end, she was just flying, just floating, I might say. And she just couldn't believe the outpouring of love and support for her when we were back at the hotel. And then when I finally went to leave her that night, she was still so happy. And I was worried that she might not be able to make the picnic the next day because It was a busy weekend, but she said she was really looking forward to it and she couldn't wait to thank the fans the next day at the picnic. And so when I went to pick her up and I took her to the picnic, she met every single fan, had conversations with them, hugging them. It was so genuine and wonderful. I'll just never forget it. There were other celebrities there that were charging for autographs and she made a point of telling me that she absolutely wouldn't even consider doing something like that. She just loved her fans that much. It turns out that was her last full performance. She had like a few months after that, she had performed at a fashion week in New York and she said that the only reason that she would consider doing that performance was because of the confidence that she gained from the fans that night at the performance in North Bend. So she did perform that one, but the performance in North Bend was her last full live performance. And I think it's so fitting because it was so beautiful. She truly was, as I said, just a generous, amazing, funny, unpredictable, just incredible spirit. And I know that At the end of her life, she was struggling and in quite a bit of pain, but I was happy to hear that she exited this world on her own terms with love. She loved her husband, Ed, so much, talked about him often. So I was really, I was, I was happy for her. So I wanted to thank Colin for this opportunity. I was really hesitant at first when he mentioned it to me because I'm not very eloquent about these things, but she was a really important person to so many of us and I think frequently misunderstood because she was quite a force in this world, but I think that everyone agrees that she was more than worth it. And I think about her often. She's with us always with her music and her talent and her spirit. And um, I'm thankful for this experience. Like I said, thank you, Colin. And um, to you, Julie, girl gang forever. I love you. 
case with Anita, I knew that she would be the best person for this because I remember reading Laura's ghost when it came out and about all these things that she had to do to get Julie Cruz on that stage for the Twin Peaks Fest in 2016. There's just so much about how that went through and just like the stress. I felt secondhand stress reading it and listening to that. Because there's just so much about trying to get everything right for this person who you idolize mm -hmm. and about how in trying to get it right also as a friend as well. And obviously for Anita, it's I, I, I took it as like it was more of like make sure she did right by her friend. So yeah, it's like a yeah. totally different dynamic than like, you know, what I would have had if I were able to meet her. Yeah, girl gang. Okay, I'm loving it. Anita, what you shared is so beautiful. Thank you about I love hearing about her laughter, that that personal relationship, the vulnerability that she shared, you know, with Anita about some of her challenges and sensitivities. I felt like it really kind of like usualized how it doesn't matter how famous you are. It doesn't matter how talented you are. We can still get nervous about things because we're human, you know, and it's like such a great reminder of that. And it was really moving to hear about her wanting to sing for Katherine Coulson. And I think Anita said so much that it's, it's hard to add, but just that when I think about Julie and the gift of her voice, that for me, I always associate with, when I think about Laura, I think about her voice, I'm much like Angela, which we'll speak about later. But I think, you know, Julie is such an international treasure, was and is an international treasure. And I don't think that Twin Peaks would have been what it was if we hadn't had her angelic, ethereal craft and artistry as a part of it. I think the testament of the ethereal power that uh, Julie Cruz had with her voice, it's actually a testament because... It was actually at least a good three or four months before I got into Twin Peaks. I actually discovered falling just completely on my own. And there's just like a feeling. I remember just hearing it for the first time. I actually just stopped to just let it sink in. And so I remember the very first time I watched Twin Peaks, I just had this like cut grabbing your heart sort of thing of just like, oh, like you just feel <laughs> this stronger presence just emerge, just realizing you're finally listened to it in its proper context. Yeah. She had like quite a lean into it is that, she was working on stage in the early 80s on, uh, you know, work such as Puss in Boots, Alice in Wonderland, and The Marvelous Land of Oz. This is when she was performing at the Children's Theater Company in Minneapolis and was also a singer. And she would end up meeting Angela Badamente in the New York City around the mid-80s. And the thing is that for Mysteries of Love, she was actually not even supposed to be in that song. Her and Angela were good friends. And he asked, like, do you think you could find singers that could fit the bill for this? And they weren't quite what they were looking for. It's like, oh, I could change my voice and do it for you. And Bob Lamenti and Lynch were just so moved by it. Of course, like she just like fit in perfectly for Twin Peaks because of it. That's awesome. Am I remembering right that also she sang Jan uh, Jan uh, Janis Joplin for a minute? Yeah, she moved to New York and played Janis Joplin in a review and also was singing in the B-52s, which then I had read that um, when she passed that actually the B-52 song Rome was playing while she was transitioning. And I just love that. And I love the song Rome. That's just such a great song. She did a lot of albums throughout the uh, 80s until 2011. I just started listening to her 2002 album, The Art of Being a Girl. Mm -hmm. And I'm surprised that people don't talk about this album more because mm -hmm. there's a lot of great stuff on this album. Mm -hmm. Of course, we always talk about stuff, The Nightingale, Falling, yeah. or Rocking Back Inside My Heart. Mm -hmm. Songs like Falling in Love are a totally different type of song, but she just knocks it out of the she park. Does. Even though she hasn't, she wasn't able to do an album since 2011, she always had this legacy of how she 
present herself and just this ethereal presence that you just feel. But unfortunately, she was battling systemic lupus from 2018 up until her death and also was compounded with depression. Mm-hmm. She really fought for those last four years. It, I, there's a, She definitely had that tough as nails part of her the, to be dealing with all these factors at one time. Yeah, absolutely. I think of like how people talk about how the music and the sound of Twin Peaks is like what really compelled people to come back to it. But I don't think anyone could be more emblematic of it off screen and on screen the way she does. Think of how many people just love questions in a world of blue Mm -hmm. and how different it would be if it was anyone other than her on that stage. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, my heart goes out to uh, Julie Cruz's family Mm -hmm. and uh, just the massive mark that she left because I remember out of all the deaths on here, this was the one where people actually asked me if I was okay or if I needed support. So I think that really does show what she really did bring to Twin Peaks and what she means to fans. Tremendous impact. Absolutely tremendous. For the fourth tribute, AM of 1400 River Road has sent one in for Lenny Van Dolan, and here she is. This is AM of the Twin Peaks blog 1400 River Road. It is an honor to be asked to pay tribute to Lenny Von Dolan. Harold Smith is one of my favorite characters of all time, but Mr. Von Dolan has a wealth of performances on his resume and I urge people to seek out his other work. Lenny Von Dolan was a versatile and consummate actor whose 40-year career consisted of diverse roles, with theater being his chief passion. He told Wrapped in Plastic magazine, I am one of those individuals whose idea of heaven is eight shows a week. As an actor, he was unreserved with his emotions. He immersed himself in roles, conducting extensive research before realizing a part. From my understanding, he performed not for adoration or acclaim, but because it was his calling. He loved his craft and gave it his all, acting in theaters across the country and originating roles in many plays. He was even in Desire Under the Elms, Betty and Jerry in Cloud Nine, and Voltaire in Legacy of Light, among countless other roles. He was in numerous films including Tollbooth, a surreal story about a Tollbooth operator searching for his girlfriend's missing father. Billy Galvin sees him as the son of a construction worker who decides to follow his dreams rather than those of his father. Under the Biltmore Clock is a beautifully filmed piece set in 1915 based on a short story by Fitzgerald. He guest starred on many television series. In the second season premiere of 30-something, he appears in a flashback as a soldier and husband called away during World War II. In an episode of Chicago Hope, he is a man who enacts vengeance against his childhood abuser. In The Lazarus Man, he is John Wilkes Booth. Strikingly handsome, wise, and gracious, Mr. Von Dolan was an eloquent speaker. He appreciated art in all of its forms and was an unwavering Democrat. Those who knew him are concordant with their memories, describing him as gentle, humble, sweet, and kind. Though Harley Payton, Mark Frost, and David Lynch helped shape Harold Smith, I believe Mr. Von Dolan gave Harold his depth, compassion, and spirit. He gave him his heart and soul. Twin Peaks writer and producer Harley Payton, Harold's creator, shared on Twitter, I had no idea just how perfectly he would embody, change, and grow the character. Mr. Von Dolan once described Harold as loving. When interviewed by Andreas Hauskopf, he said, Harold, in many ways, was an innocent, a cipher who absorbed other people's stories and so lived vicariously. 
Sensitive in the extreme, he was a nurturer, not just of his prized orchids, but of certain people he trusted. Though there was a deep sadness about him, he provided a lot of light in an otherwise dark world, reminding us all, in a way, to gather ye rosebuds while you may. In Blue Rose Magazine, issue 17, Emily Marinelli writes in her tribute to Harold, He was a wise intuitive, seeking to preserve and document life. He was connected to an inner knowing and a deeper spiritual sense of being that others may not ever access. Mark and Rosie of the Diane podcast associated Harold with magic and fairy tales. There is something about him that cannot be placed or named, but it is captivating. His theme is beautiful. Most of Harold's scenes are instilled with calmness, an otherworldliness that is strangely inviting. Laura chose Harold as the guardian of her diary. Entrusting him with truths she sometimes found too difficult to revisit. She wrote that she most often felt wonderful when she was with him and when she thought about him. For Laura to have expressed such is a testament to his positive effect on her life. Cheryl Lee once told me she believed that if Harold and Laura had lived, a deep friendship could have formed with potential in terms of healing. In Fire Walk With Me, Laura tells Harold that she knows it is dangerous for him to have the diary. The script states that Harold thinks only of Laura as he accepts it, indicating, in my opinion, his willingness to place his life at risk to honor her wishes and to help her. Mr. Von Dolan told Wrapped in Plastic magazine, Harold was not capable of doing harm to others. It was not something he could do. He was a nurturer. Mr. Von Dolan's acting has helped me through some of the darkest moments of my life, and I am forever grateful. Though he loved the stage, I am thankful many of his performances are immortalized in film. Lenny was and will always be an incredible talent and a rare and dear soul. His passing is a tremendous loss. My condolences to his partner James and Mr. Von Dolan's family and friends. Thank you, Lenny, for sharing your talent and your heart with the world. This one, I think, goes like among like the most touching of all the tributes, where it really is a testament to how powerful like even the smallest characters are, of Twin Peaks are and what they can really do and what they can mean to people. Especially a character like Harold, who is a very complicated character and like people yes. feel very strongly about, even in only in four episodes, brought a lot of discourse because of Lenny Von Dolan's performance. Yeah, I think that AM really knocked this out of the ballpark in terms of covering not only the complicated character of Harold and how much we love Harold, but all and how much we might feel complicated about him, but also just going into Lenny's incredible work as an artist. I think that she does an incredible job laying all of that out and does all of it in a very well-researched and also very personal perspective. And I just really, really appreciate everything that she says here about him and his work. One of the things that stands out is about how she talked about showcasing his work in the theater, because uh, one of the things I found out is that in uh, one of his podcasts from a few years back, he was talking about how he was basically one of three people in theater in high school. And his class was like only 72 when he graduated from high school. Also, he would study theater in college and then moved to New York City to perform. And uh, his film debut was in 1983 with the film Tender Mercies. It's one of those movies where I don't think it's really talked about now the way it was then. But this was a huge, huge deal because this was a movie with Robert Duvall. And the thing is that he was uh, he was so ecstatic when he told his mother, he was like, oh, that's wonderful. But who is Robert Duvall? <laughs> 
Oh, no one. <laughs> so, so for him, it's like he was making all these, like, you know, mo- he was doing all this monumental stuff. Like, of course, you know, there's the cult film Electric Dreams. Uh, of course, AM, she knows his, his filmography, like, way better than anyone else. But, you know, you think of how few people there were in theater in high school and how his mother was pretty passive on knowledge of film and theater. So he really had something in himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's something that made Harold so unique because... I know we're getting to fe- physical features, but I think of like his eyes where he just mm-hmm. has these unique eyes. It really shows a lot of mystery and like you don't mm-hmm. really know who Harold is just yeah. on the eyes himself and how he conveys himself on screen. Yeah, we don't know a lot about it, a lot about his backstory, you know, just from watching Firewalk with me and watching the show. But we have a sense from the way, again, his presence, right? I'm thinking like about to Kenneth Welsh, but just his presence on screen, the intensity. And, you know, he's doing it and most of like the scenes are in like a really dark space. So it's really just like his facial features that are often lit. His, you know, sort of inside there's the darkness of what's being filmed, the way it's being filmed. And so it's really about him and his energy that carries the scene. And he does such an incredible job. And, you know, when he was studying to figure out who Harold was, he spoke with a lot of like homebound folks and really got a lot of information about like, what is their experience like? What is agoraphobia like? And, you know, I was really honored that River Road also mentioned the article that I wrote in the Blue Rose magazine about Harold as a hermit archetype. And I really do see him that way that he really understands from a deep level, like what agoraphobia could look like. It's not always about being stuck at home and unable to go outside, but it's about it's a, an extreme form of like social anxiety. And not only does he really understand that, but he also, I think, just brings a, a lot of dynamic energy and presence again to who he is. He's he's a historian. He's an intuitive seeker. He's a knower. He wants to understand who people are he wants to document things he wants to help things grow like from within this darkness and he does that and i see him as this as a hermit but also as this deep knower thinker intuitive archetype as well this wise person you know holding a torch uh, at the top of a mountain is how you usually think about the hermit kind of shining the light down onto the village and shining the light on things that aren't always so pretty to look at in the village of Twin Peaks, which he does. This does actually make me think of when I think of uh, his performances, and even though it's a little more passive, I think he's the one that does sell this. And I think of the scene with Donna when she talks about uh, her and Laura when they're younger, and they saw the three boys Mm -hmm. and they went out like into the water. And I think of just how, like, oh, one, I got to point out is that for Laura from Boyle, she, like, out of all the, the Donna scenes, I think that's probably one of my favorites in terms of her performance. Mm-hmm. But it's really about, like, in terms of Lenny, though, it's really about how he questions her about this curiosity that he has, like, the, the demeanor he has, there's a certain professionalism. But it's about how when you look at him, like, when it shows him when she's talking about the story... Mm-hmm. You just feel this like sense of someone who's agoraphobic who doesn't really know how to experience it, but he also knows that there's something powerful behind mm-hmm. it. And the fact that Donna was willing to open Harold and Lenny. So regardless if he's like in the spotlight or in a more passive role, Lenny has always nailed it in terms of Harold Smith, in terms of like anything else from his filmography. Unfortunately, I don't know where to find anything in terms of his theater work apart from him just talking about mm-hmm. it. but. It's like what I was saying before with Gary Bullock is that it's a character who's really not in it that much, but really adds something extraordinary. And there's a reason why we talk about both of them years later. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for the fifth tribute, Pam of the Facebook group Between Two Worlds has sent one in for Dave Warner. And here she is to show it. 
Hello, this is Pamela Terajek from Between Two Worlds Facebook group. Today I am doing my tribute to David Warner. David Warner, you disappeared into all of your roles so well. You not only were in some of the great or popular films and televised media of all time, like Titanic, the Star Trek films, Mary Poppins Returns, and the Hornblower series, but I often forget that you were in some of my favorites, such as The French Lieutenant's Woman. But the one that sticks out besides your turn as Thomas Eckert in Twin Peaks is Lord Downey and Terry Pratchett's Hogfather. Who else could play the straight man so well against the uber-realistic Machiavellian editors and the delightfully deranged psychopathic Taya Tommy? Thomas Eckert, though, is the one that Twin Peaks fans remember you for. They needed an already legendary actor to go toe to toe to toe to toe with Piper Laurie Joan Chen, and Dan O'Hurley. In any other hands, this villain would have been forgettable. But in a TV show full of memorable villains, including the satanic Bob, you created a memorable character. The international air of gravitas and menace brought a totally different energy to Twin Peaks. Thomas Eckert was the most delight, definitely the big fish that swam from his huge ocean to the small pond and threatened to consume all he saw. And he did. Without his machinations, Josie, Andrew, and Pete would have been still alive. Though appearing in only three episodes, his presence pervaded Twin Peaks. His deadly competition with the Packards informed much of their hate. The mental scars he left on Josie left her cornered and desperate all the time. Though Thomas wasn't missed when Josie killed him in the show, you will be missed, Mr. Warner, not only in the Twin Peaks fan community, but the world at large. A fitting tribute to the man who did bring that international air of gravitas. With David Warner is that she was talking about how you needed like a very certain actor to go toe to toe to toe with people like uh, Piper Laurie or Dan O'Harlihy. And the thing is that David Warner, he just has this natural eloquence to how he handles these sort of things. <laughs> One thing I will admit is that he came in and left at like a part where I was like the most critical of season two. But the more I rewatch it, the more I just value like what he brought to it and how he handles the character of Thomas Eckhart. One of the things that he actually brought up uh, before his death was that he was talking about how he was always like, quote unquote, perfectly happy to play third or fourth banana in any role. <laughs> and also he always valued everyone's time on set. Like if he had three scenes, he knew the other person had six scenes. He made sure to get it done promptly. So you can tell that uh, on screen and off screen that there's like how Pam talked about how he would disappear into his role. You can tell, I mean, he he trained with the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts and Royal Shakespeare Company. And I mean, it shows, I mean, he's such a sophisticated, incredible actor, like you said, going toe to toe with these folks. And I think he wasn't in that many, you probably know this more than me, Colin, how he wasn't in that many episodes, but he's very much there, very much critical to the season two story arc. And I was reading an article in, by Patrick Fogarty and Colander said, Warner brought just the write notes of sophistication and superiority to Eckert, a criminal mastermind who is eventually out masterminded by his former protege, Josie. Warner meets a tragic demise in this one. Although his character's arc in this curious series was brief, it left a lasting impression on the show's devoted fans. I agree. I think so too. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Uh, one of the scenes I think about, and both of them do this incredible, is Dan O'Harlihy and David Warner when they're in the elevator when Tom Thomas Eckhart doesn't realize until that point that Andrew Packard is alive. Mm -hmm. Of course, Andrew's getting in his face about this whole ordeal. 
And there's something about the way David Warner says, I'm always careful, where he says it where there's a certain eloquence, but you also feel that there's a certain nervousness. Mm. Like this thing is shooking him up, but he's doing as good of a job to, to hide it. And I think that's a really testament to David Warner because he's done a lot of stuff. He was in the George C. Scott, A Christmas Carol, mm -hmm. a couple of the Star Trek films. He was in Titanic, like Pam mentioned. So he's done a lot of stuff that I've watched. And like what he was saying before is that how he likes to play third or fourth banana is that he doesn't really care about having the spotlight, but you can tell that there's a certain passion that he has to play the roles the way he does. And also not caring to be like a front man in any of it. Yes. And he's so talented. And I was just re-watching some clips from Titanic and he has quite a few scenes with Billy Zane, which is also a nice crossover, right? Like there he is. Um, he's also in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, which I love. And The Omen, which is absolutely terrifying. He has like a shocking scene in The Omen. I'm glad you brought that up because one <laughs> the things i found out was that him and gregory peck basically formed this friendship during and after the movie mm -hmm. but the thing that i found interesting is that months after it was filmed david warner was dealing with psoriasis around 90 percent of his body mm. which i mean anything wow. like of that inflammation is just painful in one spot he was talking about how gregory peck he actually uh, was saying like there's this place i believe in new york where it's experimental i'll pay for everything mm. So it's wow. really a testament to the friendship that those both had and like what uh, what a mark like David Warner left on his life in a, in a personal matter. It's mm, beautiful, Colin. Much like we we're saying before the previous people is that despite being in like so few episodes, he really does add something that I value more and more on each rewatch. Yeah, me too. So yeah, my heart goes out to uh, David Warner's family and also just want to celebrate the legacy they had uh, left behind yeah. because he did uh, plenty of film, TV and even audio dramas in the last mm. 20 years. So he's uh, got a quite incredible line of work for people to check out. Yeah, it was a great tribute. Yeah, really good tribute. And moving on to the next tribute, Adam from Diane has sent one in for Al Strobel, and here he is to honor his memory. Sadly, I can't say I had the pleasure of meeting Al Strobel, but his reputation as a great storyteller is something many fans can attest to. His account of the car crash that took his arm and the near-death experience that followed is, if not quite Twin Peaks lore precisely, certainly lore adjacent. It sure feels like it could have happened in our favourite Pacific Northwestern town. As Al told it, he didn't know whether he went to the Black Lodge or the White Lodge, but he went somewhere. In his words, he took a different form in a different universe. Fitting then that Strobel embodies our first major encounter with Twin Peaks' otherworldly entities when Cooper meets the inhabiting spirit Mike in his visionary dream, and later Mike's physical form in the sheriff's station when mild-mannered shoe salesman Philip Gerard transforms into his demonic alter ego under questioning. I say embodies because that's precisely what Strobel does. All actors carry their physicality into their roles. What's different here is that Strobel's remarkable physicality is foregrounded by the fiction. After all, Mike, the one-armed man, and the removal of his arm is framed as a magical or even sacred act. This echoes uncannily with Strobel's account of his terrible accident. Post the death of Catherine Coulson, mere hours after the death of our beloved Margaret Lantiman, this porousness between Twin Peaks and the real world, particularly with regards to tragedy, is something the fan community are more than a little familiar with. The return's orientation towards the passage of time and mortality has made each loss of cast and crew that much more acute, and, I'm hesitant to say, darkly apposite. Strobel's death takes us back to that place of sadness, but the thinning of the veil between the fiction and reality that makes it so acutely painful is in some senses a gift. There's a hope that in honouring his iconic scenes and his central role in them, we can penetrate the darkness and truly honour the man. 
even if we never knew him. While all elements of the production converge on these single points to create magic, the spellbinding force is Strobel's mesmerising presence. The arrival of Mike in Philip Gerard's body sees Strobel writhe and convulse before resolving into uncanny poise. His delivery, augmented by echo, finds the correct register for revelation. From here we're transported into a visionary landscape that few actors could have delivered with such power. Fire Walk With Me is an incantation. It supplements the everyday elements of plot, dialogue and story with the enigmatic energies of poetry and in doing so permeates the show with a mystery that will not yield to analysis. Mystery for mystery's sake. In a sense, it is like the best poetry, its subject distilled and it belongs to Mike and so to Strobel. It is Strobel's iconic performance in both scenes that makes this movement from art to the sublime possible. In the police station, Cooper will chorus the words with him, and Laura will repeat them in the sad, glorious film that takes the opening words as its name. But when we recall them, it is Strobel's voice that we hear. It is the texture and charge of his words that undergird Twin Peaks. Truly, Al went to another place and took a different form in a different universe. For that, we will be forever grateful. I hope you can hear this chant out between two worlds. Thanks, Colin, for giving me the privilege of this tribute. Out of all these tributes, this was like one of the most eloquent of them all. I thought this was like just the wording that Adam brought about how Al Strobel's experience at 17, how it's not unlike what we would see in Twin Peaks. There's something about like with Al Strobel is that what he brought to each scene as the one-armed man. It was actually uh, Scott Ryan actually did an interview with him in Blue Rose where he was talking about how when he did his scene in episode 13, when he transforms from Philip Gerard to Mike, and he was thrilled that Leslie Linka Gladder actually showed the transformation without cutting away that it was basically an actor's dream mm -hmm. and that his next favorite scene was uh, his scene fire walk with me both these scenes you just feel something strong in the air when he's there it's a real shame because el strobel he doesn't have that much in terms of like what you're looking at his imdb but if he, anything he was in he like really added something extraordinary yeah, this is probably the hardest loss for me personally this year, Colin. And he does this tribute that we've just listened to is really incredible. I think Adam does a, such an incredible job of honoring him and his legacy and the complexity of his character and talking about good and evil and all of what, you know, he represents, Phil Gerard represents. And for me, Al's character and even in The Return especially, but in the first two seasons as well and in Fire Walk With Me, he's a guide He's a seer and he kind of has a almost a, a shaman like presence of supporting and helping Coop in all these different ways and all the other characters. And my favorite moment is the firewalk with me moment at the at the intersection. And every time I see it, it brings me to tears and it represents for me like what what happens in the scene itself is actually terrifying. It's like the lodge is trying to tell Laura what's going on to help her. There's the noises of the electricity. There's the smell of gas. There's communication breakdowns. They can't hear each other. It's dreamy, it's confusing, it's chaotic. And this is, it represents for me the reality of trauma and how trauma can get distorted and disconnected and dissociated. And it's done so well. And Al's, like what he's doing through that, you know, truck he's driving, through the window of the truck and the, what he's bringing there, it's like, it's in every 
fiber of his being. You can feel it and you can see it. And of course, what Cheryl and, and Ray are doing too. It's it's the three of it's all of it, right? It's how it's being filmed too. But it's what Al is doing and you can barely hear it, right? Like you have to kind of really pay attention to what he's saying and his lips to be able to hear what the words, but what he's bringing is really to me embodying all of those elements and those aspects of what Fire Walk With Me does so well, which is take us into that last week of her life. And that moment really, really does that, I think, really well. And Al, I'm I'm just appreciating this tribute so much. And Al, I'm just really missing you. And I know I'm not the only fan who's listening to this, who's feeling that way about him, of course, about the other folks too. But this one's really hitting me. And, and those of you who may know about my podcast or if you've ever listened to it, know that I love tattoos. So I, I am thinking about what would be a good commemorative Al Strobel tattoo and so if anyone has any ideas, maybe not the the Owl Cave or the fi or Fire Walk with me, but something else, something a little bit maybe different. I'm really open. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. And I love commemorative tattoos. It's a way of loving and remembering and commemorating. And yeah, just just all these people who these incredible artists that we love so much. So anyway, hit me up if you think of something good or tell Colin and Colin will tell me. Right, Colin? Would you ever do a mom tattoo, the one that Phelps had before he had to cut off the arm? <laughs> you know what? I might. That's a, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> but uh, no, I guess the uh, well, and we were you were mentioned about his scene at the intersection is that yeah. once again come back to Scott's interview is that when uh, Scott asked about how Al viewed the one-armed man as being part of the Black Lodge or the White Lodge, mm -hmm. the interesting thing is that Al Strobel said all of it mm. not both but all oh, of it yeah, so sure i think it really is indicative of how he views that there's something much larger that we see in twin peaks and also probably how he views the his the world in general totally so i thought that was a really interesting thing and also during the production of three penny opera in san francisco he met Catherine Coulson during that in 1967. And despite the fact that they were both on Twin Peaks in the original series, they didn't actually see each other during it, but they would end up reuniting at the rap party for Fire Walk with me like 25 years later in a very Lynchian manner. But I thought that was <laughs> a really, really cool. interesting thing that Al Strobel uh, put out. But anytime the one-armed man was on screen, even if you didn't view him as evil, there's always something you felt mm -hmm. uh, that you felt that there's something in the air that only he could do. So yeah, that's right. I think Al Strobel, like my heart goes out to him and his family because he uh, reportedly died at 83. And then later on, it, it said 82 on December 12th of, of this year. Actually, uh, this is what I'll say behind the scenes is that it was actually after I did my episode uh, with James about Alistair Crowley where we found out we both were on our phones and we just felt just this sudden just like drop. It's a drop. Like yeah. it just really just like hindered the rest of our day. So yeah, it's a testament to uh, what Al brought to everything in Twin Peaks mm -hmm. and like how he sticks out with fans. And I just want to thank Adam again for such an incredible tribute. It was great. Now that we're starting to wind down, here's one that was done by Scott Ryan of the Blue Rose magazine, Your Lord Disappeared. And he's done this to honor the legacy and memory of Angelo Badalamenti. Hello, Cream Cornaholics. I'm assuming that's what you are called if you listen to this podcast. Um, Colin reached out to me and asked if I would do a tribute to Angelo Badalamente. Uh, my name is Scott Ryan, the author of Fire Walk With Me, Your Lord Disappeared, the Blue Rose Magazine managing editor, and the upcoming Lost Highway book. And, I mean, mostly just like a big Angelo fan. Um, Angelo and Stephen Sondheim share a birthday, 
and last year Stephen Sondheim passed away and then this year Angelo passes away uh, very close I mean within a week of each other maybe two tops um, a year apart and uh, losing two of my musical giants um, you know it sucks to put it uh, lightly Angelo to me is as important as Mark Frost and David Lynch. I mean, the three of them are the keys to what Twin Peaks was. You could not remove one from that triangle and, and still have the, the shape of the mountain. I mean, you just need all three. They're just as important. Uh, I'm sitting at my keyboard right now, and I thought I would play a little Angelo. I got this piano book back in 90, and it meant so much to me to be able to play it. And it's also worth remembering that Julie Cruz is no longer with us. so cool about that song is while they're doing falling it's C B flat A and G I mean you're coming right down the scale you're basically falling down um, I think that is always so very beautiful um, you can, it's weird because when you really think about listening to Twin Peaks songs, if you're like me, you don't really think about falling. You're, you're listening to um, Sycamore Trees or Things from Firewalk With Me. Um, you know, there's so many great tracks off that. And then plus in season two, like I love Attack of the Pine Weasel, you know, but it all started from falling. It all starts from that. Um, it wasn't written for Twin Peaks. It certainly is from Julie Cruz's first album, but um, you, you just can't separate that from Twin Peaks. Uh, the other one, of course, is Laura Palmer's theme. And it was very nice because someone sent me an email this week saying that they reread my chapter about the music 
after Angela passed, and they said how much they loved how I talk about the difference between the theme of Firewalk With Me and the love theme from Twin Peaks, Laura Palmer's theme. The theme from Firewalk With Me, which I can't play because they never released a book for that, and I'm not someone who can play by ear, um, that is Laura Palmer. Laura Palmer's theme that we know, that is how people saw Laura in the town. This is the sadness that Sarah feels um, and the creepiness of what's going on in the Palmer house and the way that everyone thought of her as the homecoming queen, especially when you get to what makes Angelo a genius you know he's got this beautiful thing going where you're playing this as it's coming down again falling down and then it goes to the and it's just not quite perfect it is the it's the off center that the town is going through and then it comes back down to uh, the mystery which is very much how the town sees Laura Palmer but when Angelo went to do the movie, he didn't use that again. He knew he had to do Laura Palmer as the character that she was, and that is the music, a theme from Firewalk With Me or the lyrics in the Julie Cruz album, She Would Die For Love. And, you know, it's got a little creepiness, it's got some bass, it's got rock and roll, it's got sex with um, the trumpet or the saxophone, depending on which version you listen to. You know, just like Lynch spends time on painting a picture, just like Mark Frost spent time developing character, Angelo spent that time on developing themes that truly represented the characters. Um, just listen to his music. I have listened to it for every book I've written. Whether it's Twin Peaks or not, you can put that on. It's inspiring. Um, it's a privilege to get to talk about Angelo. Um, and just to prove that I'm the one actually playing, um, I, when I emailed back and forth with Angelo, I told him, like, you really challenged me in Audrey's dance. Um, I'm not good enough to play this, so this will be kind of bad. Because your right hand has to play this part. Okay, now right now the left hand's just playing two notes. They're octaves, so I can do that. But the little Cooper bass is going to come in here. Itself, but now together.
good enough to play this. I mean, you have to keep, you're doing two things at once. Your right hand is playing that, which is cool while you're playing. But It gets crazier in Dance of the Dream Man, which I can't even kind of do because you're playing the... While you're still playing the... And I mean, there are people who can do two things at once, but I am not one of them when it comes to the piano. And in my emails to Angelo, I said like, you were my piano teacher. Um, I'm not sure I lived up to his work. Uh, so that is my little tribute to Angelo. Um, thank you, Colin, for giving me this chance to, to pay tribute to his music. And, um, you know, if you need something to read, um, chapter six of my Firewalk With Me book, um, I went through the score and, and sort of broke these songs apart and showed what Angelo did and I sent it to him for Angelo to fact check it for me and he sent me back the nicest email that really meant a lot to me um, that I'll have forever which is great so uh, thanks everyone and uh, we'll catch you next time I didn't realize this until uh, he actually did this tribute, but I didn't realize just how good of a pianist that Scott was, contrary to how he talks about Audrey's dance, but it, it really <laughs> does, it, but it really shouldn't surprise me because he talks about your Laura disappeared and the way he just understands all the music of Angelo Badalamente from Fire Walk With Me. To be honest, I this always like slipped my mind every time I talked with Scott, but if he ever wrote a book going further into the music of Twin Peaks across all three seasons, I think he would nail it. But in terms of uh, Angelo Badalamente is that it was already painful enough to lose Julie Cruz, but to lose the other component of music, like the, this was one of the hardest hitting death just because it was so close to the end of the year. And we already lost another musical legend earlier this year. Yeah. You know, I really agree with Scott when he says like, you need all three, you need Lynch, Frost and Badalamente to make Twin Peaks. It's the, the music is the heart of it. And in his book, it really is a deep dive. And I agree with you, Colin. I'd love a deeper, deeper dive too. Like he could go further. There's a lot more to say, but there's a lot of really good tidbits that he shares in this tribute. And I like falling down and falling down the scale, learning that as someone who, you know, doesn't really know that much about music, but kind of understanding it that way is was really cool and I love knowing that he shares a birthday with Sondheim if if you know Scott you know that he loves Sondheim and so do I and I'll just mention that he and I were able to go this summer to see Into the Woods on Broadway which is the Sondheim show and we got to interview David Patrick Kelly which is in issue 17 of the Blue Rose and I just mentioned that because it feels like a full circle like here's this year where we got to experience Sondheim and he talks about just having lost Sondheim just I mean it's just it's too many losses but anyway just these incredible artists who brought us so much musically and more and then here they are passing within a year of each other so and and the other thing that I didn't say earlier is that 
I really like learning from Scott about how the music is really off center, he says, and clanky. And that's how the storytelling works in Twin Peaks. And so it's all part of it. Like the music is really, really integral. And what Bad Elemente brought is unparalleled. In terms of Twin Peaks, I think of like, you know, there's there's very little I could say that other people have said better, but ones I do want to point out is that I love his soundtrack for On the Air. Like there's some about that intro where for some that was just like an offbeat comedy, there's something about that jazzy intro, that calming feel to it. But also, like you said, there's some that just feels a little off. Also, Rabbits, where you think of something like Rabbits, where just this threatening ambient feel throughout that whole thing because of Balamenti's score. But the one I really want to highlight is uh, his soundtrack for The Straight Story, mm-hmm. which um, if yes. Twin Peaks uh, across all three seasons in the movie, those of, are up there. But I would say The Straight Story has like one of the most powerful soundtracks you could uh, you could find. That movie, I don't think would have the emotion that if it, it was anyone else, because there's just something you feel strongly just from the music, mm-hmm. just from what Balamente brought and how different it is from everything he's done before and after that with David Lynch. The last thing I will say is that uh, David Lynch, in his own words, said he can write anything and is fun to work with. And you think of that video that I think most people, most listeners have probably heard is the one where Bob Lamenti's talking about the writing process for Laura Palmer's theme and how they both worked alongside with each other and how it just moved Lynch and uh, how Lynch knew how to just keep it just at its rawest form and to not expand further. So it's like you were saying is that uh, there's something about like how Bob Lamenti, he is one of those core components and I really do feel his loss. Me too. Um, he's It's iconic and his work is iconic and he's won all kinds of awards and should have and should have won more and it's forever a part of the landscape of Twin Peaks and it is a huge loss and I know a lot of folks are really feeling that loss particularly with Angelo having that happen right here towards the end of the year, especially. This is one where I knew this was going to hit people hard because I believe it was Jesse from Sign Peaks where when the words started going around, he actually didn't want to believe it. Like he had, this, out of all the deaths, this is like the one of the times where I saw someone where they wanted to wait for confirmation because they just couldn't believe mm-hmm. that someone of his scale in a year of losing so many other talented people could happen. Yeah. So my heart goes out to uh, Balamenti's family and, of course, all the people who we've talked about. So unfortunately, while I was editing this episode, I found out that John Neff passed away. And uh, just because it's so late, unfortunately for this part, Emily won't be here for it. But before I get any further into John Neff and what he brought to the world, here's my friend Katie to honor his memory. I've re-recorded this a few times. I think this is the one. But I met John... at Twin Peaks Fest 2016. It was my birthday. I had just gotten engaged to my now also late um, ex-husband. And everything was wonderful. We met John and found out who he was. And I immediately bought a Blue Bob album. It's on my shelf, all of my memorabilia over the years next to Mason Amick signed Polaroid actually from that same year and Catherine, uh, yeah, Catherine Stewart's autograph as well, Mary X. Aw. But um, we met John in 2016. He was easily the most friendly person there, even though a lot of people there were friendly. He was just, we had a thing, like, we clicked as friends, you know. And he really clicked with Kenny and 
sometimes I found that it was kind of hard for him to relate to people in life. So that was always a welcome thing for him to get good experiences, especially with people who were indeed so famous. I really never knew until now how famous John actually was. <laughs> but um, he, we left the fest. We had an amazing time. And John kept in touch all on his own. I felt like he followed us and guided us through our marriage and all the issues that I started to have. And 2020 came along and I got divorced. I was separated. I was, you know, getting out and living in my studio and I wasn't getting back any of my things. It was pretty nasty. And John and I talked about that quite a bit, actually. During those struggles, talked about, you know, what it's like to lose your stuff. And sorry, just be prepared. And he did prepare me, but I did get my shit back. So that was nice. <laughs> but either way, uh, when I was in the studio, I just barely moved in. I had almost no furniture and the, just the cats and my computer. And... Angela Nolan hit me up. She was like, hey, how are you doing? And I was like, fuck life. And she said, well, you, you should come to New Orleans, driving up Route 66 to go. I'm just going all the way down Route 66. And she's like, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go here. And I'm stopping in Joplin. And I'll come pick you up. We're going to go to Memphis for a couple days to see some family she had. And then we're going to go. And John Neff will be there a few days after. And I said, John Neff, I haven't seen him in so long, but I feel like we talk all the time. And so we went to New Orleans together, me and him and Angela and a couple of my girlfriends. And I remember on Halloween, we went trick-or-treating, all of us. And he said, I can't believe I'm a 70-year-old man surrounded by beautiful women trick-or-treating on Halloween. This is, this is just all of my boyhood dreams come true. And we were just, it was a happy, laughing evening. And one that I still tell that story for. And uh, it was just like that with him all the time. It really was. And... He just never forgot anybody. He never lost track of anyone. He kept his logs so consistently that it took not posting one to know that he was gone. And, sorry. <laughs> I don't know how long this is supposed to be, but got a lot of stories with him. It was nice to see him in Lexington I was actually getting ready to, um, well, wait, hang on. No, I did go to um, Seattle North Bend in March. It was right before, it was either right after Lexington and before my photography conference or what, but I went out there and we saw each other again. And then after Lexington and that first trip, we saw each other again in August. And then October. Um, August was one of the most fun. We went and hung out at the Rose Garden. 
the Washington Park Rose Garden out in Oregon, and he said it was one of his favorite places. And uh, usually I would just sit in the back and we would all smoke and I would listen to them share stories too. And yeah, he was one of a kind. He was such a good friend. He got us through a lot of really difficult times, me and her both. And I could just keep going. He had so many stories. He had so many things to tell. And sometimes I feel like maybe, maybe they're finished and we're just not ready. Um, but we love them and we stay loving them. And I'm going to miss my friend so unbelievably. And his energy spreads to love all of this and all of you even more because I have a feeling that it's why a lot of us are still alive in a lot of ways. Um, Twin Peaks and the family, the, it's, it's my oxygen. You're my breath in and out. I miss John. May he rest pain-free and peacefully. Things that always troubled him, kept him up at night. May that not happen anymore. So I think Katie did a remarkable job of just conveying what made John so unique. Um, yeah, there's just something about how personable he was and just how, how wholesome he always was and how he was always just so honest and sincere. I actually got to first talk with him uh, when I did the virtual event Wyndham's Cabin over the summer, and uh, it was really nice just to be able to tell him that I thought Lynch just saw something truly special in him because anyone who knows Lynch knows what sound design means to him. And for him to trust John Neff with projects like The Straight Story, Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire, Blue Bob, it really shows that he was as equally talented as he was kind. Luckily, I was actually able to meet him a few months later when I was at Spooky Empire in Orlando, Florida, which was nice because I was unable to see him when uh, he came to Lexington, the event that Katie was mentioning. And upon meeting him at, at Spooky Empire, he actually did sign my Mulholland Drive Criterion Collection in exchange for a couple Chardonnays. And there's just something about, you could feel this certain presence when you were around him, because uh, I remember it was at a party where a lot of us were kind of, uh, maybe not quite hovering around him, but we all were just, you, you could just feel something in the room because of what he added. Um, yeah, it's like what I was saying before, is that there was that certain wholesomeness that he had and how he handled himself. Um, anyone who followed John Neff online, they could tell you that it was really just like the man himself and how he put himself out there. It sounds really silly, but there was just something about his daily posts of what food he was eating, his uh, what the weather was like uh, outside of his apartment. Um, yeah, he just always had this certain authenticity and sincerity and just like with all the smallest things in the world. So of course my heart goes out to all of his loved ones, but of course, you know, there's so many other fans who have met him, have talked with him. Anyone who wants to bring up any stories they had about me and him, they're always welcome to share in any of my comments. But I do think it's safe to say that we all feel his loss and he will be dearly missed. 
yeah, no, I just want to close out just by saying that uh, this has been a really eventful year. And uh, mm-hmm. I just want to say to everyone, Ben and Brian from Twin Peaks Unwrapped, mm-hmm. Maya McBriar, Nita Wren, AM, Pam Terjack, Adam Stewart, and Scott Ryan. It really does mean a lot that you all took the time to do this because I think of like just how I started just this year and uh, how many people were just willing to get this out, like, you know, some which even just like promptly within a matter of hours and even last minute in the case for the unfortunate passing of Strobel and uh, Bob Lamenti. But it really does mean a lot that people took the time and that people like, you know, took the time to listen. And while I am taking a break for a couple months, I just want to say thank you and that, you know, whether you just listen or and who's helped with a, a previous episode, it really, I, I value it from the bottom of my heart. So, so thank you, everyone. Yeah, thank you, everyone, too. And Colin, your podcast has just been incredible to listen to this year. You should be so proud of yourself. It's really, really awesome. And you've done an incredible job and put out so many amazing pieces. And I've learned so much just from listening every week. Thank you so much. Yeah, everyone. So uh, this is my last episode of uh, 2022. And I'll see you all in 2023. And um, until then, hope you all have a happy new year. Yeah, happy new year. And maybe Colin, I could say one more part, if that's okay. Yeah. So what I wanted to just say, as we wrap up and remember all of these folks, and again, as Colin mentioned, all the tributes were just so heartfelt and fantastic and i just want to say that what i love about fandom is that all of these incredible performers and actors get to live on through our love of the show and they live on in the art that we make inspired by the art of twin peaks and their art lives on in our stories the ones we've recorded and the ones that live in our hearts and our minds only and the ways that each of these artists have touched us personally spiritually psychologically Whether we ever got to meet them in person or not, we know them and we love them and we appreciate them anew each time we experience the show. And we remember the music. That's the heart of the show that helps ground us in the ethereal, dreamy world of Twin Peaks. We remember the misunderstood hermit who's the holder of stories and from whom the world doesn't accept. We remember the villains that give this story dimensionality and remind us of the evil that men do. We remember the one-armed guide, the seer, the spiritual knower who reminds us that we can always make different choices, whether it's future or whether it's past. And so that's what I wanted to say as parting words that we are taking with us from this year of both celebrating and also remembering.
the things I touch are made of stone. Falling through this night out to 